This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. And I'm your host, Lori Flores. I'm here with Benjamin Heber Johnson, the author of Escaping the Dark Gray City, Fear and Hope in Progressive Era Conservation, which just recently came out with Yale University Press in 2017. Hi, Ben. Hello there. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So where are you calling from right now? Uh, I am calling from uh, a friend's house in Berkeley, California, where I'm doing a little early summer research. Oh, okay, great. I want to hear about that maybe at the end. Um, sure. But I'm really excited to talk to you about Escaping the Dark Gray City. I just finished it, really, really enjoyed reading it, um, and I'm excited to have a little talk with you today. But before we get started talking about your book, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, where are you from? Where did you go to school, uh, and what has been your path to get to this point in your career, both um, professionally and in the course of writing this recent book? Uh-huh, yeah, so I grew up in um, Houston, Texas. Um, I'm uh, profoundly and perversely attached to Texas, and I can't shake it, um, but when I was 18, I wanted to get um, out and go as far away as possible. Um, so I uh, found a liberal arts college in a small town in southern Minnesota, which seemed like it would be a change of pace, um, Carleton College, and um, went there and actually had some of the experiences that have ended up informing this book um, and some of the places and characters, indeed, um, I first became aware of uh, as a result of some of my time in Minnesota. Um, decided that I liked history enough to give it a shot um, as a profession. And so um, I went to Yale University for my Ph.D. program, Um, came very close to writing a dissertation um, on conflicts over the coming of conservation, including some of the material that's ended up in this book, but uh, went another route and wrote about uh, racial conflict and civil rights in the Mexican Revolution along the U.S.-Mexican border, and sort of slowly kept coming back to environmental topics in my research. And so I kind of um, ended up easing into what became this project. Mm -hmm. And that dissertation that turned into your first book, that was Revolution in Texas, right? That's correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. What publisher was that? Um, That was Yale University Press as well. So you got to work with Yale again on this one. Uh Correct, yeah. Oh, great. So, um, so I know that you said you had sort of had material for this research topic, that you had had ideas for this book very early on. Um, but 
in finally getting around to this project, why did you finally decide to tackle it and write it? I just, um, I guess it's a couple of reasons, you know, both kind of coming from the scholarly world and certain unanswered questions and coming from my own, um, coming from my own personal and actually classroom, classroom experiences. So, you know, when I was first, you know, in graduate school and being trained as a historian, I think one of the really important developments in U.S. environmental history was to start writing much more critically about the history of American environmentalism, um, which was a big move for the field because I think it had really, environmental history in the United States had really kind of come to age as a self-conscious intellectual project, largely because of the environmental movement itself. And so when people wrote about environmental politics, when they would write about people like Gifford Pinchot or John Muir, they thought of themselves as kind of writing about the good guys and the heroes. And it was a um, sort of adulatory story. Um, but in the late nineties, people started writing much more critically about this and particularly looking at um, the ways that an emphasis on a pure nature and the establishment of places like national parks and national forests um, dispossessed people, uh, most starkly native people, but not just, um, but not just native people. And so that trend, you know, I, um, contributed to that in my own, uh, in my own modest way with some of my, um, earliest research about the connection between disputes over, um, the establishment of a national forest and labor politics in Northeastern Minnesota, where it was clear that new hunting regulations and conservation regulations were kind of used to um, limit the ability of miners to resort to subsistence when there were strikes and lockouts and whatnot, as there frequently were. Um, but I began to think that this trend had maybe um, gone too far um, or at least lost sight of some of the more democratic and empowering achievements of, um, of conservation. So that was kind of the intellectual um, you know, or scholarly, uh, or scholarly side, um, you know, on the kind of personal and classroom front, um, I, you know, actually some of my, uh, um, dissatisfaction with that emerging scholarly con consensus kind of came out of the classroom. So if I would teach this sort of new environmental history to people who, you know, like liberal arts college students in the Midwest who were really, um, politically committed environmentalists, you know, they would be, um, it would have a great impact, right? They would realize that it was problematic to just talk about places as natural places without human history and human inhabitation. Um, when I would teach it to more conservative students, um, they would just laugh and say, you know, this is what always happens when the government does anything. And it just kind of fed what seemed like a really dangerous cynicism about collective action and state programs and the whole legacy of conservation. And I began to fear that I was just giving people more reason to not even want things like national parks and national forests. I just thought that's terribly, you know, that's terribly mistaken. That's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. um, that's not what I want to do at all. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to provide a more balanced view of the conservation movement. Right. Yeah. And I started looking and, you know, I started, um, you know, research projects are always a kind of mix of, you know, the cerebral and intellectual and abstract and just the personal circumstances of your life. Um, I was spending a lot of time in Los Angeles 
um, in Southern California um, because I'm married to a, um, a historian of Southern California. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, just go to the Huntington Library, this great research facility um, uh, in Southern California. And I started reading the papers and writings of kind of less famous conservationists in Southern California. And I was really stunned by what I found because they didn't fit kind of either one of these narratives, either the older purely celebratory one or the more recent, much more critical one. So these were people who were really interested in cities. They were really concerned about um, the alienation from nature that a lot of just kind of everyday working class um, urbanites experienced. Um, And when they wrote about wild nature, um, they didn't write about it as always um, as a place devoid of human history and devoid of human occupants. And so I thought, well, these guys are interesting because they don't quite fit our understandings of what conservation is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I actually thought about writing it as an L.A. book, um, but I wanted to try to write something that at least puts itself forward as a kind of, national level interpretation of conservation as a whole mm-hmm. so that it wouldn't just get slotted as you know some weird stuff that happened in one region mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. but it's something i think is actually you know more characteristic of conservation as a whole that is a lot more internal diversity and a lot of people actually talking about cities and a lot of people who understood that social questions and questions about humans and nature are actually tied up with one another mm-hmm. Yeah, in order to, what I really liked about your book was that you do have a really um, wide spectrum of people you were talking about, and it really broadened my mind uh, in terms of who I thought was a conservationist or what uh, the conservationist movement encompassed, who it included. And you're also, I think, filling a gap um, in the history of progressivism, in the history of the progressive era in American history by telling this national story. And from my own experience in trying to teach progressivism to my own students, Mm -hmm. it's often really challenging because there's no concise definition of progressivism. There's so many different agendas. There's a lot of historical actors to consider. So Mm -hmm. do you find that in writing this book, it kind of informed or um, mutually constituted the way that you teach progressive history too? Yeah, it's definitely. Thanks for bringing that up. This is definitely one of the ambitions of this goal of this book is to get us to think about conservation as a fundamental part of progressivism. And I think particularly for the turn to state power to deal with problems caused by industrial life, just as progressives were interested in things like um, food and drug safety, anti-monopoly, labor reform. Um, uh, you know, Americanization and questions of, and questions of uh, dealing with immigrant populations brought by the incredible industrial expansion of the United States. So I do, you know, think of this as a, um, also as a history of, as a history of progressivism. And I become in the middle of doing research for this project, I'd become one of the editors of the journal, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, and I was just struck by how marginal environmental questions were to the kind of articles that we were receiving. Um, you know, it was like it was two different worlds, the kind of world that's studied by environmental historians and the world studied by people who understood themselves as scholars of, as scholars of progressivism. But as you point out, it's, uh, I think some of the same challenges come to the fore um, in writing about conservation as in writing about progressivism as a whole. 
progressives. I mean, there was a progressive party, but not everyone who was a progressive, you know, uh, was loyal to it. And progressives thought about all sorts of things and had different takes on basic questions like should women have the vote? Um, what are appropriate gender roles? Um, how should the country deal with the existence of monopolies? Um, so conservationists like progressives as a whole were a really fractious bunch. And so I wanted to be able to make some meaningful generalizations about them, but without doing violence to the internal um, differences uh, that distinguish conservationists from one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. you do that really well. And uh, I want to get into the contents of the book and, and get into your individual chapters. But uh, first, I wanted to ask you, because I, I just think your book has a beautiful cover. Uh, when I got it in the mail, I, it just struck me, this cover image. Um, can you tell me a little bit about it before we get into the insights? Yeah, thank you so much. The first thing I'll tell you about it is um, all praise to Yale University Press for getting that cover. I had um, the most difficult time coming up with a cover. It's really um, hard, right? <laughs> so I want to claim no credit for the beautiful cover. Um, but I did want something that captured um, the idea of the title, Escaping the Dark Gray City, which is the sense that the rise of industrial dense cities and the effort to escape them either by changing their structure or humanizing them by building city parks or by escaping them literally in the sense of going out to the countryside and particularly to the wilderness, that was so fundamental to conservation. So I started off with, a, I had in my notes uh, a description of a vivid block um, print kind of arts and crafts style of a bungalow with citrus trees around it and a looming uh, snow-covered mountain in the background. Um, and I never could recapture, I never could find that again. I kept finding versions of the book um, without that picture. Then I found another similar arts and crafts print that I really liked um, that actually showed the be- a beautiful bridge in Big Sur and a car going over it. And it kind of captured a sense of motion and you know departure from a metropolis. But there were permission issues with that. And so at that point, I just gave up and said, oh, just pick a picture from the book and put it on the cover. Um, and the, the, um, uh, the fine folks at Yale um, found this image instead, which is um, uh, up in Malibu. So heading north, heading up the Pacific coast from Los Angeles and the kind of rail lines and infrastructure that you see, you know, suggest the kind of tendril like reach of a city but it's also going out into this beautiful countryside that's not purely an artifact of, of human ingenuity or, you know, uh, a built landscape. So to me, it captured actually one of the big themes of the book, and it was really attractive. So um, I was uh, tremendously pleased with it and, you know, felt very lucky to be working with such uh, fine designers. Yeah, it's a great design. Um So let's uh, start by, you know, just with the basic question and something that I didn't really know the the deep history about. Where and when did the conservation movement start or even the term conservation being used uh, in this way? What are the beginnings of the movement? Sure. So and one of the interesting things I found was that conservation as a concept including many of the statements of people like, say, John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club, that we would later 
come to think of as um, as epitomizing conservation happened years and in some cases decades before the term conservation itself came to be the word for um, the kind of environmental protections and self consciousness that we're that we're talking about. Um, so it's you know it's hard to place a particular um, it's hard to place a particular beginning point for conservation. I think if you want to actually look at specific government programs that are designed to address what their architects think of as environmental problems, most people would point to the 1890s with the creation of large federal forest reserves in which um, millions of acres of land are going to be permanently removed from homestead entry and remain on an ongoing basis in the hands of the federal government and to be managed for um, the environmental benefits like timber and water um, that they produce. Um, but if you think about conservation as um, an idea and a sensibility and particularly a concern that um, the conditions of industrial life um, pose some real problems for the connections between humans and non-humans and that they needed to be managed both for the benefit of nature and for the benefit of humanity. If you think about conservation as an idea in that sense, then the story becomes much more complicated. Um, and I think you have to push the chronology back a bit, at least to the classic George Perkins Marsh um, writing in the 1860s um, and, uh, well, and a little before that, warning about the dangers of um, overwhelming deforestation and the prospect that environmental change, instead of marking progress, will actually mark um, decline and, um, and destruction and um, material impoverishment for the United States. Mm -hmm. well, yeah, what I found fascinating was your discussion of these long-held anxieties about disaster that Americans have had for such a long time. Um, environmental disaster, climate disaster, the prospect of the annihilation of humans or of resources in the natural world. We have always been fascinated with dystopias. And um, your book definitely gives us a, a, a deep history of that. Can you talk a little bit about what you call um, the anxiety over dark futures? that we've had uh -huh. for a long time. Yeah. So that, that really struck me, uh, you know, and just kind of reading and kind of reading through this material in part, because I feel like, uh, America is in another kind of American culture is in another kind of post-apocalyptic moment mm -hmm. right now. Right. Where, mm -hmm. you know, from, well, I guess it's an adaptation of an older uh, book, but the handmaid's tale to all of the kind of zombie films, um, to a lot of work for obvious because of global climate change, um, about massive environmental catastrophe. And I've always been, I've just always been interested in those accounts, just, you know, not even in a, my capacity as a professional historian, but like just as a reader of fiction or as, as a watcher of television. And so it really struck me how apocalyptic a lot of conservationists were going back to the 1890s. And so they did envision, you know, often things like basically the destruction of human civilization because of environmental profligacy. Although as I got more and more into it, I realized that something else that was really interesting about that was that this was often associated, these environmental catastrophes were often associated with 
cataclysmic um, clashes between labor and capital. So they were also bound up in these fundamental social questions, and particularly the question of of class conflict and whether um, industrial capitalism and democracy were actually going to be compatible with one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this clashing is going on in industrial centers, in cities. Uh, so, you know, as you say in your introduction, the regulation of nature is inevitably tied up with the regulation of society, the regulation of people, um, and getting people to have a different attitude or understanding towards um, the natural world outside of the cities, because the the cities themselves are creating this sense of alienation, not Mm -hmm. only from, you know, humans from each other, but also humans from their environment. So what were the differences between how conservationists and environmentalists, how did each of those groups um, want to think about or create or invoke beauty and wildness um, for American people? How did they want to do that? Yeah, so there was a there was a range of um, you know there was a range of ways, um, and I guess you know the first thing to say is that the some of the more critical accounts of conservationists are not wrong. They're actually I think really nicely capture what some conservationists were about. So there are some conservationists who really don't care about the lot, about what goes on in cities. They just want people, presumably people with the means to be able to get out of them. Right. So Mm -hmm. um, John Muir, much as I love him, I think kind of falls into that category. Uh, As long as there is Yosemite, Um, what goes on in San Francisco does not particularly trouble him, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's kind of that category of, um, there's kind of that category of conservationists. Um, There's another for whom, who found, um, especially the early kind of railroad suburbs um, to actually be a place of great refuge um, and a place where the kind of alienation of urban life could be, um, could be checked. And so one of the writers I talk about in that regard is this guy named Dallas Lore Sharp, who coined the phrase escaping the dark gray city that ended up going into my title. And although we think of suburbs, or at least I think of suburbs as the product of a, you know, modern suburban civilization as environmental wastelands. Um, I think for people like Dallas Lore Sharp, especially the kind of Northeastern or Midwestern railroad car suburbs, um, where you could go out onto a little farmstead or at least a house on a large lot where you would have a garden where you could um, uh, you could have the kind of uh, plantings on your you know on your own property that evoked the um, plants and the ecology and the natural history of your region if, and where you could observe um, non-human animals um, and get a sense of their life cycles and their lives, you know, they really found that to be um, a satisfying kind of antidote to um, the alienation from nature um, fostered by urban industrial cities. Um, But they either weren't aware or really didn't care that that was, you know, in a sense, a kind of consumer good, right? You had to have the money to then as now, right, to buy a nice piece of real estate that allowed you to go in and have your white collar job working you know, for a corporation and then go back to this kind of retreat where your wife and family would be, um, you know, happily ensconced in more 
in a more bucolic environment. Um, so he's another kind of type. And then the third type are people who are more like the Reverend Dana Bartlett, uh, who I profile, and uh, who was a Southern California, Southern California figure, um, uh, and and a, and a bunch of other figures who actually also wanted to kind of reform the way that cities looked, right? So they wanted green spaces in cities, they wanted um, big parks in cities, and um, part of the reason for this was their um, painful awareness that not everybody could afford a trip to go to Yosemite or could afford the kind of nice suburban retreat that Dallas Lore Sharp talked about. So am I, am I responding to your questions? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm asking uh, you to talk about, which you present so elegantly, I think in the book, which is this wide, var- wide variety of conservationists. It's such uh-huh. a great diversity of them and they are all kind of on this, spectrum of solutions, you know, to the problem of alienation, whether it's taking place, you know, through the creation of beautiful spaces within a city or looking to the suburbs as an escape or looking to national parks as an escape. Um, It was interesting to me how conservation uh, was sometimes the act of creation, you know, something that wasn't there before creating it instead of merely preserving it. Mm -hmm. That's That's right. yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So, you know, this wide variety of the ways and approaches in which, you know, people are taking to um, having wildness in their life and having beauty in their life, you certainly don't shy away from letting us know that there was still a lot of exclusion going on, that there is a lot of um, access for people and a lot of ways for people to access beauty, but for others they are not able to access this kind of wildness and beauty in the same way. Who is being left out of the conservation state at this time in American history? Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a, um, it's a few things. So I think if you want to look at cities themselves, depending on what city you're talking about, uh, the truth is that a lot of these kind of visions of what I call urban conservation just don't come to fruition. Right. So there's a big strain of Los Angeles history in this book and Los Angeles ends up being one of the most park poor um, urban areas in the United States. And the ambition of these early 20th century reformers is um, they're just almost completely unrealized um, to the extent that even some of the contemporary environmental um, initiatives and urban environmental movements in Los Angeles are actually kind of resuscitating, whether they realize it or not, um, some of the calls made in the early 20th century. So, for example, there's fascinating work being done creating parks along the Los Angeles River, which essentially became a paved sewer for the city, um, and which most Americans have seen, actually, whether they know it or not, and, and um, grease, light, grease lightning or um, Terminator and, you know, the chase and car race and car race scenes. Um, so for, in a lot of cities, not every city, um, and Boston and Chicago, I think would be exceptions, but in a lot of cities, this is simply kind of, uh, urban poor or working class, um, lose out in this. Those visions of conservation, um, are not, uh, are not implemented and the kind of power of private real estate ends up being, ends up being supreme over this kind of more statist version of, um, of planned development. And in the countryside, um, uh, people, uh, a lot of rural people, um, 
are essentially alienated from the natural world that um, is their home and which they had still relied on in some profound ways um, for material subsistence. So here I um, think that the kind of uh, critique of conservation focused on dispossession of Indians is actually true, and there's no way to see conserv- to look at conservation from the vantage of Indian country um, and not, I think, you know, realize that this is, you know, white people and their government with guns coming to take things away from Indians. Um, so there are um, persistent conflicts, you know, still today, especially in places like Glacier National Park, um, the eastern half of which um, the Blackfoot Nation understands was promised to it in a treaty in the 1890s, and they believe that the continued holding of the park and their exclusion from it is in violation of that treaty, uh, and therefore they've you know never accepted it. Um, but the um, alienation from subsistence uh, was not something that just happened to Native people. Um, so I show other kinds of um, rural people, either white Americans or in the Southwest, and particularly in New Mexico, you know, Mexican Americans or Hispanos, um, similarly find that their way of living off of the land um, had become, you know, was criminalized. Um, so there are definitely some losers in this and definitely some non, um, you know, some some dark chapters and sobering chapters that I think environmentally conscious scholars and people of all sorts today should um, should be aware of and should understand that that's part of the that's part of their inheritance from conservation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a Latino historian, I really appreciated your inclusion of Hispanics in New Mexico, their part in this story, because I think that there's still so much work to do in terms of um, intertwining Latino history and environmental history. And uh, I was really excited to see that point of convergence in your work. Yeah, thanks. I would. That, that's one of the, you know, I mean, we've talked about some of my reasons for writing this as a kind of big sprawling book rather than a local case study. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some costs to that. And so when I was writing about the New Mexico stuff, I thought, you know, I had many moments where I thought, oh, you know, um, I want to stay with these stories. Yeah. You know, I want to go into the archives. I want to unpack these things much more. Yeah. Um, but in this kind of book, you sort of talk about that and then you, you know, move on to another move place on. and another dynamic. Yeah, I know it must be difficult, but it'll inspire others to take up those stories and dig deeper, right? That's the hope. Well, that would be wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about uh, your third chapter. I found it really interesting um, because it's in chapter three, which is called Back to Nature, uh, uh-huh. in which you talk about architecture a little bit. And uh, I've been um, interested for a long time in sort of the evolution of different architectural styles in the United States. And in particular, you talk about the bungalow and and how the that kind of style of living and that kind of style of home for those who had the means to create that for themselves. How did that help people feel like they were getting back to nature? Yeah, now I'm glad this really connected with you because to me this was given my background and training, this was the newest stuff. I had never written about architecture before. And I, um, you know, I just have a poor grasp of the history of architecture um, and material culture. So um, it was really, um, you know, I really had to challenge myself to do this. Um, But I also thought it was really important because, um, 
because conservationists and environmentally minded people at the time had a lot to say, especially about domestic architecture and the ways in which it could possibly help kind of forge a psychological connection for its inhabitants to the wider natural world, even as they, you know, lived indoors and enjoyed and enjoyed modern amenities. And the bungalow was one of the main ways in which this happened. And so it's history. I've always just been a fan of bungalows. Right. Uh, I lived in a bungalow one year in San Antonio. I now live in a, you know, uh, Chicago style brick bungalow. Um, <laughs> the bungalow actually is an adaptation of a kind of um, British colonial adaptation of uh, a South Asian dwelling. And when it came to the United States, um, and Canada, it starts off as a kind of um, like summer kind of retreat, um, almost like cabin. Um, and uh, that was kind of how it was adapted. Uh, and then it kind of became a normal, um, you know, house for regular people. And while there are some super, you know, expensive and um, noteworthy bungalows that I mentioned, the other thing that's interesting about the bungalow is that it actually, it wasn't a home for particularly wealthy people, right? You could have incredibly modest bungalows, you know, bungalows you would build, um, you know, like ordering from the Sears catalog mm-hmm. um, and, you know, get the parts, uh, all the parts and the instructions and the instructions shipped to you. Um, so it reflected the breadth of conservation, both in terms of, you um, the wide kind of social segments that it would reach, but also in terms of this is another kind of landscape that conservation was interested in, not just city parks, not just remote forests or mountains, but also, um, but also domestic architecture. And a lot of conservations have a huge, they just love bungalows too. And they taught them, they talked about them as kind of breaking down the stark division between the indoors and the outdoors, the private and the public. Uh, the artificial and the natural. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's a really interesting chapter. Um, and the ones that follow chapter three, I mm-hmm. was paying attention to your titles, your chapter titles. And so uh-huh. the last three chapters of your book are called Fighting for Conservation, Fighting Over Conservation, and Fighting Against Conservation. Uh-huh. Uh, so I wanted to go through each of those um, three chapters with you. So. Sure. Uh, In fighting for conservation, can you talk about the divisions that were found within the movement and what was splitting people along lines of um, gender, ideology, or other um, points of contention? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So what I try to do in the kind of paired chapters four and five is talk about both the ways that it makes sense to think about conservation as a kind of big tent that had a lot of different people with different beliefs about some basic social questions, things like um, gender, socialism, capitalism, democracy. So on the one hand, a kind of big tent, but on the other hand, um, and, you know, where people would often cooperate with one another. And, but then on the other hand, um, real divisions between conservationists, which ironically, the more successful the movement came, became the more those divisions kind of came out to the, um, came out to the fore. So let's see here. Maybe you can help me out. Um, the, um, so some of the divisions, um, well, 
you have people who um, actually care about cities and think that cities um, don't have to be environmental wastelands. And you have, on the other hand, people um, who think that um, cities can be however they're going to be, and you just need to have nice places for people to escape cities um, to go to. Um, you have um, more conservative um, groups in the sense of people who basically accept the legitimacy of industrial capitalism and even large-scale corporate capitalism versus people who never reconcile themselves to that um, as being compatible with what they understand as American traditions of, of democracy. Um, you have uh, um, women activists and men who are comfortable with or even embrace um, high levels of female political participation and leadership. Mm -hmm. So the Audubon Society, for example, although it usually has a titular sort of male head is something that's really um, driven by women um, and the General Federation of, uh, of Women's Clubs um, similarly was involved in uh, a massive number across the country of uh, environmental protection efforts. And, um, you know, they often sort of uh, kind of paid homage to some sort of titular um, male leadership, but, um, but they were really running the show. And then on the other hand, you have men who don't want to have anything to do with um, women political leaders and who, you know, think they're flighty and sentimental and not, you know, um, hard-headed and rational in the way that male conservationists were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so some of those are some of the um, those are some of the uh, kind of internal tensions that I that I try to bring out. Yeah, I thought yeah. another one or another kind of difference between some people were those who wanted to completely protect natural resources versus those who wanted to harness them productively to serve human beings, right? Like, aren't mm -hmm. there some people who think, well, we should totally leave water and timber alone versus people who wanted to to use those resources more efficiently and productively? Uh -huh, yeah, so that's, a, that's also a tension. And this is, um, you know, that I try to preserve. This is one where I feel like past writers about conservation actually did a pretty good job of capturing. Mm -hmm. And so the terms that they would use were um, preservationists versus um, conservationists or utilitarian versus romantic conservation. Oh, okay. And the classic case here is, you know, where these things kind of come to a head is the case of Hetch Hetchy in Northern California, which had been part of Yosemite. Um, and um, which after the terrible earthquake, San Francisco earthquake, the city of San Francisco wanted to use as a uh, municipal reservoir to provide um, a water supply um, and notably one not controlled by a monopolistic um, private uh, water company who progressives loathed for just gouging the state and gouging ordinary urbanites um, for a basic necessity of life. And then people like John Muir who just thought it was an abomination that you could take such a splendid natural place and um, debase it as they saw it for, for human, for human uses. Um, and I think in the past, you know, most um, environmental historians writing about this tend to be more sympathetic to the kind of Muir preservation side. Um, and I can certainly see that. And in my own life, I mean, I'm like a super kind of wilderness, you know, outdoors oriented, person and it's probably one of the reasons I 
you know, was interested in environmental history and the history of environmentalism, you know, even um, before I started becoming a professional historian. Um, but I also try to show that in a way, the reason why people like Muir could take the stance they did on Hetch Hetchy was that they really didn't care about most people in San Francisco and what their lives were like. And somebody like Gifford Pinchot, who was, you know, not nearly as nice a fit with kind of contemporary environmental sensibility on many counts. Uh, one of the reasons he backed the city of San Francisco is he actually thought it was really problematic to have a major city whose residents were dependent on a private company for the basic necessity of water and viewed the reservoir as a way of kind of smashing this private economic power and therefore, you know, really freeing hundreds of thousands of people um, from that. And, you know, I, I see the appeal of that vision too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. I guess the other thing I'd say about this is that, and this is kind of one of the one of the surprises for me in the research was that at first it was just me seeing these different divisions and tensions, but then the deeper my research went, I started seeing that conservationists at the time actually saw them too, and to some extent wrote about them and argued about them. So for me, the kind of the most interesting archival find of this research was finding a long series of exchanges between Gifford Pinchot, you know, the founder of the U.S. Forest Service and the kind of key environmental bureaucrat, really of American history, but certainly of the progressive era, with Horace McFarland, who was a city beautiful advocate out of Pennsylvania and much more interested in urban conservation. And McFarland kept trying to get Pinchot to recognize that cities were important and that the kind of things that people like McFarland were proposing for cities were really part of a sweeping vision of conservation that included things like national parks and national forests that Pinchot was interested in and that they would actually be better off if they kind of joined their forces and maybe even had a common organization. And at first Pinchot was kind of polite and kind of went with him a little bit. And, you know, I think he wanted McFarland's support. McFarland had a much bigger organization with a nationwide reach. Um, but then finally, Pinchot just can't, can't bring himself to do this and to embrace what he calls the aesthetic side of conservation. And so they sort of, it's like watching a dating, a, you know, a relationship kind of a once promising relationship unfurl. They sort of flirted with one another for years and they kind of bitterly split ways and write nasty letters mm. to their mutual friends about how deluded the other one is. Oh, no. so, <laughs> so people, so it's not just me or us today looking back on it mm -hmm. and seeing these different tensions and splits. You know, the actors at the time, I think, were to a considerable degree aware of them. Mm -hmm. And that must have been really validating, you know, just to your own kind of hunches, right, about what was going on here to see it. Oh, I stood up and cheered. Yeah, uh, I mean, that's you know, our dream, right? When I found this. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And uh, the way that you end your book, the epilogue, uh, mm -hmm. you take us, well, you try to show the relevancy of your project or um, this book on the progressive era to the present day. And certainly um, after, you know, these discussions that we're having about the Paris Accord, about climate change, global warming, um, but also other conversations about uh, racial minorities or other minorities having greater access to the outdoors mm -hmm. um, and inequality when it comes to access to beauty or access to the wilderness. Um, all of these things, I can see why 
it would make sense to have an epilogue focused um, or, or looking to our present moment. So mm-hmm. in your opinion, what were you trying to communicate to readers today um, through your historical characters that you focus on in this book? What are you, in the epilogue, what are you trying to um, say about the conservation and envir- environmentalist movement of the 21st century? Yeah, so I guess what I want to say is I feel like conservation, a, a good history of conservation can offer a, a usable past, right? What you might call a usable past. That is um, something that doesn't, you know, give us a roadmap or like a specific five point plan, but a kind of tradition that you can um, learn from and adapt to present circumstances. So, and I guess I try to do this in a couple of ways. I mean, I try to show, I think, more so than other environmental historians, I see later changes in environmental politics, like the rise of people like Rachel Carson or Aldo Leopold or the kind of environmentalism as the 60s. I see that as, of course, there are new things, um, and particularly the focus on pollution and human health, I think, is um, is something of a departure from progressive era environmental politics. But I see them as adapting aspects of progressive conservation to new circumstances, um, both because the circumstances have changed or because they see some of the shortcomings of progressive conservation. So, for example, both Rachel Carson writing in Silent Spring and Aldo Leopold writing in the Sand County Almanac, I think are very wary of what um, scientific expertise and over-specialization does, that it prevents people from seeing um, holistic connections with nature and that it prevents them from seeing the need for kind of cultural change, a culture of environmentalism, not just a set of government programs um, or plans. Um, and I think the, so part of it's just that kind of as a historical argument, right? That um, conservation kind of sets a pattern and a lot of later debates you can understand if you believe my argument about the diversity of conservation, you can understand them as people sort of rehabilitating one strand in conservation to argue against the shortcomings or excesses of, of another one. Um, and I think this, you know, maybe the second way in which it's, uh, it hopes to be a usable past is um, to show that the more recent, the much greater attention paid to questions of racial diversity and racial justice and questions and the related question of urban environmental conditions. Um, that's also uh, a later chapter in a long story, right? The people doing this starting in the 1990s, coining the term environmental racism, um, they are, it's incredibly important work. They're not the first people to address these kind of questions. And in a way it's the kind of, I see it as almost the um, return of these social questions to a greater prominence within environmental circles. And of course, it's a return in a different context. And especially on account of race, you know, the conservation movement and progressivism as a whole happens at, you know, basically the apex of white, modern white supremacy in United States history. And contemporary environmental politics are playing out in this kind of post-civil rights slash, you know, Trumpian back backlash moment that we live in. 
Um, so the dynamics are a bit different, but I think it's a return to recognizing that um, social questions and environmental questions are closely tied up with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and taking yeah, care of the environment, we're taking care of each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I know that, you know, this book just came out and you deserve to keep celebrating it (laughs) um, and rest for a little bit. But you mentioned you were in Berkeley right now doing some new research. Can you tell me about that, what you're working on now? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not. um, Yes, of course. um, uh, And thank you. So I'm in a way going back to my kind of focus on borderlands or Mexican-American history. Um, and so I have it in my mind to write another kind of big book. Um, but this one, instead of looking at a particular moment, um, would look at Latinos as a quote unquote problem for American liberalism. Um, that is this idea that this kind of going back to the 19th century idea of liberalism, the idea that you want a society that's based on a country of equal citizens with all of whom have equal standing before the law, the right to private property, and that um, the form of government they adopt um, reflects their consent and their will and has limited powers. Well, going back to the U.S.-Mexican War, this liberal tradition, which has been so profoundly um, powerful in the United States, um, has had a lot of trouble um, incorporating or dealing with um, or dealing with Latinos going back to uh, a non-white population in the 19th century um, that was heavily Catholic that held a lot of its property, especially in places like New Mexico, but also in California and Texas that held a lot of its property in common. And then thinking about um, later periods of Latino history where um, Latino populations obviously have deep connections with um, uh, with other countries. Um, with other with other national projects, so I'm here looking at um, the papers of Paul Taylor, mm. who's an incredibly influential agricultural economist at Berkeley, right. and was one of the first U.S. academics to um, write about Mexican Americans and to see how you know incredibly important they were to the present and future of the and future of the country. But it's the early stages, so I just go in and I read his letters and try to get a sense of who he is and all the different things that he's. Um, that he's doing. Right. Yeah. The Taylor papers are so rich. I'm so glad you're looking at those. That's, yeah. They're amazing. Yeah. Well, that sounds exciting. That's great. Um, well, I really want to thank you, Ben, for talking to us about your book. Again, the title of the book is Escaping the Dark Gray City, Fear and Hope in Progressive Era Conservation out of Yale University Press 2017. Uh, in order to um, find Ben's book. You can go to our link on newbooksnetwork.com. Also, I'd encourage you to follow the New Books Network on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you so much, Ben. It was great to talk to you. Oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate this opportunity.